This week on Business Brief, we'll hear from Southwest Airlines Chief Communications Officer about communicating in a corporate crisis. Then we'll introduce Missouri Made, a special new project focused on the state's manufacturing sector. Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the business news and issues shaping the state. My name is Siggy Reese, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chelsea Peter. Chelsea, how are you doing this week? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And you? I'm doing great. Um, Had an interesting uh, time watching the VMAs on Tuesday. What did you think? Yeah, I had a great time watching it, too. I loved a lot of the performances that I saw or that I got to see. I saw Shakira and... Megan and Cardi B, and they did a great job. Who did you see? I really liked Olivia Rodrigo's performance. I really like her new album, so that was uh, super interesting to me, and I know she's going on tour soon, so I thought that was super cool. Yeah, I heard about that. Yes, very cool. Mm -hmm. She's coming to Missouri, which is super exciting. Nice. All right, well, are you ready to get into this week's headlines? Yes. The United Auto Workers started a strike against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis late Thursday night after the expiration of the union's contract with the automakers. The UAW includes more than 13,000 members across three factories in the Kansas City and St. Louis areas. It has been seeking increased wages, improved benefits, and a shorter work week. Inflation saw its biggest monthly rise this year in August, with prices rising 0.6% month-to-month and 3.7% annually. Energy prices drove the increase, rising 5.6% from July. This rise will likely influence the Federal Reserve Bank's decision regarding interest rates when central bank officials meet next week. The J.M. Smucker Company is acquiring Hostess brands for about $5.6 billion. The acquisition of the Kansas City area company includes around $900 million of Hostess's net debt. It is expected to close before next February. Smucker will acquire Hostess's brands such as Twinkies and Coffee Cakes, as well as its facilities. Congress is back in session and facing a potential shutdown. Congressional leaders will work with President Joe Biden over the next few weeks to negotiate a short-term spending deal that aims to gain votes from members of a divided Congress. If a deal isn't reached, a shutdown could occur. Congress will also negotiate a short-term extension of the five-year Farm Bill, which now funds nutritional programs for low-income Americans. Physicians at Washington University in St. Louis will stop administering gender-affirming care treatment to minors, regardless of when they started treatment. New state laws prohibit minors from receiving this care, but they only apply to individuals who have not already begun treatment before the law was implemented. Transgender youth patients at Washington University will still be able to receive education and mental health services. The decision comes after University of Missouri Healthcare decided to stop providing hormone therapy and puberty blockers to all minors last month. Cannabis sales in Missouri dropped slightly last month, according to state data. Recreational medical cannabis sales for August totaled $119 million, which is about $4 million less than the record sales recorded in July. Recreational sales in August brought in more than triple the revenue of medical sales, which have been consistently declining since March. For our next story, we turn to the airline industry. What's going on over there? Well, there were a bunch of flight cancellations last December that disrupted holiday travel across the country. Remember the tweets showing piles of suitcases at airports? I do remember that. People were so not happy. 
Yeah, and then Southwest Airlines continued cancellations for days, which it blamed on scheduling and technology issues. For a business like Southwest, communicating with customers in situations like that is challenging, but crucial. You're correct, because crisis communication is incredibly important to a company's public image. So who did you talk to? Linda Rutherford, Southwest Chief Administration and Communications Officer, was in Columbia this week to accept an award and deliver a talk on communicating in a corporate crisis. I caught up with her afterward. Well, Linda, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you today. I really enjoyed your talk and I'm excited to, you know, hear more about your role and um, what you do at Southwest. Thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, first things first, um, can you just tell me a little bit about your role at Southwest? Sure. I, I have the opportunity to work with leaders who are uh, leading several functions, and that is everything from communication and outreach, uh, culture and engagement, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, all of our HR functions and our learning and development, as well as internal audit and technology. So I like to say that while uh, marketing is making promises and the operation is delivering on those promises, that we are all the functions that are working in the background to make Southwest Airlines run. And you also talked about, obviously, crisis communications and um, that aspect of your job. Now, what is the most challenging part of crisis communications for you? I think the most challenging part of crisis communications is just the dynamic nature of a crisis. In other words, if you've been through one crisis, you've been through one crisis. And so there are lessons to learn in every one, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you now have the blueprint for every crisis that might happen in the future. So I think important lessons for us are to know uh, we have to be responsive, we may not have all of the information. Uh, we need to tell what we know when we know it. And we need to be willing to learn uh, if there's something we could improve upon or do better the next time we have to respond to a different crisis. And what is the most common mistake that you see companies making in communicating about crisis situations? Uh, two um, challenges that organizations have in crisis response. The first one is that they commit too early to what they think a cause might be, and they end up having to correct down the road. Um, and the second is uh, a little bit of attention deficit disorder, where once you're past the crisis, you immediately move on without spending some time in what I like to call the brand restoration. There are, it just, sometimes that just takes time. And I think organizations can at times get impatient and move beyond that too quickly and assume that they've rebuilt the trust of their stakeholders when in fact they haven't. So you talked about uh, the crisis over the winter and uh, the steps that Southwest took in communicating that crisis. Um, could you quickly kind of recap what Southwest did and uh, what your role was in that? Yeah, with our operational disruption last winter, we obviously had what started as a winter storm, which we were prepared for, and evolved into an operational crisis, which we were not fully prepared for. Um, my role was to help direct the response to that crisis, um, both the immediate you know, response as well as the recovery. Um, and then here we are now in what I like to call the restoration phase, where we have determined you know, what went wrong, we have explained what we're going to do differently, uh, and now we're ready to sort of show how we're prepared for a winter operation you know, this coming winter. Um, the 
the action plan itself kind of broke into uh, how we're prepared for winter ops, um, and that is everything from staffing to equipment. Uh, it is about the uh, the journey that we're on to modernize, you know, our operational technology support. Um, and it is about how we are going to be better coordinated in our decision making and escalation to make sure that when we make one decision uh, in an operational um, situation that we understand kind of what the ripple effects of that are. And so I think we'll be more crisp and more collaborative in our you know, decisions that we make the next time we respond to an operational disruption. And what to you was the most kind of crucial aspect um, of your strategy during that crisis? I think that while we were trying to figure out what the ultimate solution would be to reset the airline, it was about being real. Um, it was about being as responsive as we could be, both to our employees and to the disrupted flying public. Um, secondly, I think it was to explain very quickly that we were going to make things right with customers and then what did that look like. And then lastly, it was going to be that we're going to be transparent about what we learn and what we're going to do differently next time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Our next story is a project the Missouri Business Alert team has been working on for months now, and it just published this week. Abigail Ramirez is here to tell us more about it. Thanks for being here, Abby. Of course. I'm super excited to boast about Missouri Made. So what can you tell us about the project? Missouri Made highlights the history and current impact of manufacturing in Missouri. We had eight reporters each explore a different piece of the state's manufacturing industry, whether that be food, automotive, or fashion. So manufacturing includes all shapes and sizes of businesses. Just how big of an industry is it here? Well, there are more than 7,000 manufacturers across the state, and they employ nearly 300,000 people. Oh, okay. So, and you mentioned this project looks at manufacturing history. So how does the size of the industry today compare to historical levels? Well, when COVID-19 struck, Missouri lost about 360,000 jobs. Around 25,000 of those jobs were in manufacturing but the sector beat expectations in recovering from those losses. Manufacturing employment in Missouri grew nearly 6% in the past three years, which was well above the national average. Interesting. What has been some of the drivers of that growth? Where is manufacturing thriving in the state? A few examples come to mind. With the legalization of recreational marijuana in the state, production facilities in that industry have been growing and adding jobs. Auto manufacturing has long been a big economic driver in the state. Ford announced last year that it was investing close to $100 million to start a third shift at its Kansas City area plant to make trucks and vans. And General Motors said last year that it would invest $1 billion at its plant in Wentzville, which makes a variety of trucks. Another sector that's thriving is the food and beverage manufacturing industry. There have been recent expansions to produce everything from Italian meats and charcuterie in Colombia to waffle products in Hazelwood and bottled water in Kansas City. Got it. So you mentioned each reporter focused on a specific sector. What was yours? I had the beverage industry. In a state dominated by Anheuser-Busch, I wanted to find stories that were overshadowed by big beer. After some research, I found that Missouri has a rich history in wine and a booming craft brewing industry. Wow. So what about the wine industry makes it historic? 
Well, the wine and beer industries, in fact, emerged around the same time in the 1840s. Each industry was founded by immigrants taking their own culture and bringing it to the state. For many years, both industries grew in tandem, but when breweries were able to adapt to prohibition, wineries were destroyed. It was only in the 1960s that wineries reemerged in Missouri, and in the last 20 years, the amount of wineries has grown 650%. That's a drastic change. So you also mentioned craft brewing. Is it seeing the same sort of growth? It's similar. In 2011, there were only 43 craft breweries in Missouri. Last year, they totaled 143. So the number of breweries has more than tripled. The sector was ranked 22nd in economic impact for Missouri last year. Nice. So can you tell me a little bit more about your story on Logboat Brewing? Logboat is a brewing company in Columbia that started when three guys in a band decided that they wanted to start making their own beer. At first, it was just for fun, and then they turned it into a career. They opened doors in April of 2014, and the rest was history. In the last few years, they've been working on an expansion to be able to sell their beer to a greater area of Missouri. They even opened a cidery. How did that happen? One of the owners, Judson Ball, found that he was allergic to gluten and developed a love for hard cider. After a brainstorming session with the higher-ups at the brewery, they decided that a cidery would be their next venture in the alcohol industry. Now they have four year-round ciders and seven year-round beers, along with seasonal products on rotation. Okay, well, thanks so much, Abby, for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you want to find out more about Missouri Made, check out MissouriBusinessAlert.com. It is now time for us to get into our words of the week. Chelsea, what do you have for us this week? This week, my term is no loan. Okay, interesting. Can you explain what that means? Sure. So it's being used to describe a program Washington University is launching to combat student debt. Interesting. So what is this no loan program? Well, it's a program that aims to ensure that students admitted to WashU will not have to rely on student loans to pay for school. Wow. And how will this work? So, admitted students who received need-based loans through FAFSA will get their loan amounts replaced with grants and scholarships. The program will begin next fall. That's all I've got this week. What's your words, Siggy? My words are cease and desist. Okay, so who sent the cease and desist and who received it? So, the answer to your first question is former President Donald Trump, or his presidential campaign, rather. The Trump campaign sent the cease and desist to groups fundraising for Missouri Republican State Senator Bill Igel, who's currently running for governor. Interesting. So what sparked that move by Trump's campaign? Well, Igle's political action committee sent out emails encouraging supporters to stand behind President Donald Trump as he was being probed by the Department of Justice. But the email also said in small print that the money donated would go towards Igle's campaign rather than Trump. Ah, uh, okay. So what does this all mean for Igle's campaign? Well, it's not the most ideal time for Eigel to receive this letter. The senator only formally launched his gubernatorial campaign last week. And if Eigel angers Trump further, it could hurt his campaign as many Republicans support the former president. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing music for this episode. For my co-host Chelsea Peter, editors Yashami Kowaichuk, Skylar Rossi, and Michael Stacy, I'm Siggy Reese, and this has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.